going on, everybody? Welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And if you'll notice across the table from me today, no Cole. It's our long lost buddy, AJ, who is back finally from his vacations and travels, which were numerous, I might add, to uh, finally get back to work and just in time for Cole to be sick for the second week in a row and have to take his place. So already in the new year, Cole's not looking good. Just really starting to question his, you know, sort of his dedication to the podcast. That's fine. And then, uh, yeah, we we haven't uh, put out an episode in, let's see, three weeks now because of the holidays. Then Cole got sick. Then me, my wife, and my six-month-old decided to all get COVID for New Year's. And then Cole got sick again. It's been a rough, rough go of it. So AJ was nice enough to uh, step up because it was about to be just be me in here just talking to myself. So to save you guys from that nonsense, uh, we went ahead and uh, it just came, stepped up. We're going to do a patient case for you guys. We kind of whipped one up based on uh, our, our colleague, Alex Hovey, one of the PAs we've both worked with. Um, he had a pretty good patient case that he had talked to me about anyway. So I figured we'd turn it into an actual uh, episode. AJ, how's school going, man? It's going, man. We're about done. Um, pretty much a pharmacist at this point, you know. Yeah, well, there's nothing else I'm, I'm gonna get. Nothing else I need. I've got it all. Did uh, is third year finally like giving you a little bit more trouble? Because yeah, I know first and second were pretty easy for you. We're on that downslope, man. It's uh, it's all cruising from here. Just oncology from now on. You know, just the basics, the simple stuff. Oncology, immunology. Because nothing crazy. You you start rotations in May, right? Oh yeah, that's coming up. I'll be in Hawaii. First rotation? Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you already know. Uh, of course you will be. <laughs> so, uh, well, while AJ's thinking about Hawaii, and we're going to run through this really quick. I'm going to switch screens. When I switch screens, I actually hit the uh, off record. I stopped recording for a second, so there'd be like this weird, like, clip if you're watching the uh, the video version. Um, if you're listening, it just sounds like I'm talking for no reason. But, uh, so, if you are listening or watching the video version on YouTube, if, if you've never checked that out, check out our YouTube channel. It's uh, nowhere near as cool as uh, our Spotify and things like that as far as number of listeners. So, trying to push some more people that way if, if you... Uh, like the YouTube platform, but um, if you're watching the video version, you can kind of see this uh, on my screen here, but uh, it's 63-year-old white male, um, problem list just based on, you know, the the chart, uh, bipolar 2 disorder, um, specifically with major depression at this point, um, insomnia that's uncontrolled, uh, epilepsy that's uncontrolled, the patient has a history of tonic-clonic seizures, uh, it does have a history of dyslipidemia and hypertriglyceridemia, hypertension, um, recent weight gain the patient's complaining of, uh, a history of, a recent history, I should say, of hyponatremia, and also type 2 diabetes, but for the first time ever in one of our patient cases, it's basically controlled, or well, is controlled. So, um, yeah, just a little extra tidbit. Um, medications, get ready for this one. So medications, uh, clonazepam, two milligrams at bedtime for the insomnia, um, risperidone, two milligrams twice daily, uh, carbamazepine, 200 milligrams twice daily, divoprox, uh, delayed release, 500 milligrams three times daily, levotracetam, 1000 milligrams twice daily, losartan, 100 milligrams uh, daily, uh, hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, a tour of a 40 daily, phenofibrate, 48 milligrams daily, and our old buddy metformin ER, 500 milligrams twice daily. So the complaints of the patient is uh, bringing up at this current appointment. Um, basically, they, the patient has seen multiple uh, neurologists, multiple uh, psychiatrists, and uh, we did actually, or the provider that was dealing with the patient um, in the primary care setting did reach out to both neuro and psych, who um, 
I will say in this particular instance, weren't the most helpful. They're kind of like, yeah, the, the meds look fine. Um, but as you can see, there's a lot of overlap. And we, we had to figure out like what was being used for psych purposes, what was being used as an actual anti-epileptic. And so um, that that part was pretty, pretty uh, confusing at first. And so, um, the, besides the having to go to multiple appointments, see multiple pr providers, um, the patient um, just says that the Risperidol and Dival products, we basically found out from other charts and whatnot, that, that they are being used for the bipolar disorder, the major bipolar, major depression. Um, the patient is experiencing depression symptoms um, that have been going on for several months now. Um, the history of hypomania um, is from a couple years ago, and it's not something that he's had any issues with, so no, like cycling or anything. And uh, the hypomania um, isn't super well documented anyway, so uh, there is that little bit of... Um, not to jump, you know, and, and to get out of my uh, out of my lane too much, but um, there is that uh, you know uh, discrepancy between true hypomania and then something like depression with mixed features, which has some of the hallmarks of and symptoms of hypomania along with the depression at the same time. And you can be they can be treated similarly um, in some cases, but we do have some data with like Latuda for mixed symptoms. So we've talked about that in our depression episode. Um, but the patient. Uh, the family actually, um, which the family is really helpful in this situation. Um, they say that the, um, patient has been uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically aggressive lately. And it basically becomes very agitated over like very minor issues, um, which never was an issue before. Um, the family has also noticed that while they're talking with him, that he's doing like kind of like face grimacing, um, that his tongue is sort of like protruding from his lips um, here and there. Um, he's doing other like facial movements. And so they were taking that as like him getting angry while they were talking to him about whatever it was. So we'll come back to all that because there's a lot to unpack with that. <laughs> and then uh, the clonazepam for insomnia. So uh, the insomnia symptoms were helped for a couple weeks when the patient was first on clonazepam. The patient was taking initially clonazepam one milligram and zolpidem five milligrams. And after asking the patient how he was actually taking them, it was basically the clonazepam two hours prior to the prior to bedtime, and then zolpidem about thirty minutes prior to bedtime. Said he didn't feel like the zolpidem was really helping, and so the, that was discontinued. Clonazepam was increased to two milligrams, and that's been on board now for like eight months. Um, now basically back at pre-treatment baseline as far as symptoms go, not sleeping. Taking takes him a very long time to actually fall asleep. Once he is asleep, he can stay asleep. So it's the sleep onset insomnia, but it's been going on for several months. And um, the other thing that was kind of interesting is this patient was just recently hospitalized, not for a long period of time, but um, they were stabilized pretty quickly, but they were hospitalized with hyponatremia. Um, and the other thing is the seizure control has not been sufficient at all lately. So over the last like three months, the patient's been having multiple seizures, um, over the course of a month, at least like one or two a week. And, um, so the, the family is obviously concerned about that as well, especially with him being on so many anti-epileptics. Um, the, uh, blood pressure triglycerides, um, we'll address those as well. So the, the blood pressure today is 144 over 86 and so nothing too crazy, but we still would like it down a little bit less than 130 over 80 would be ideal. Um, lipid panel, uh, the LDL was 98 and the triglycerides were 245, um, down from 423, four months ago. Uh, at that point, the atorvastatin was started, 40 milligrams was started and the phenofibrate at the same time. Um, LDL came down quite a bit and then, uh, triglycerides 
also, but uh, still up there a little bit. And uh, the CMP uh, was all normal. The sodium you can see is is still a touch low, but um, it kind of has been staying in that ballpark of 132 up to around 138 or so. Um, EGFR is normal. Uh, the hemoglobin was 10.1 and, uh, MCV was 73 and a ferritin levels. We went ahead and got an iron panel. Ferritin was, uh, 17. Um, the good news is the A1C was a 6.9. So good job, metformin and lifestyle management. <sighs> AJ. That was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. The biggest thing I think about when I go through these, uh, anti-epileptic medications is the SIP inducers. So carbamazepine always scares me. I don't know. It, it scares the bejeebies out of me because of the auto induction for 2C, 3A4. I'm like, okay, so all of them pretty much as we're going through everything. And then I see levetiracetam. We see Lasartan, Atorvastatin. I'm like, oh, 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 okay, what's going on with the, the blood levels here? And, and for those of you who are not familiar, uh, basically the um, carbamazepine has an auto induction. So it's a, it's a inducer of the substrate, a sip of a few different steps, and it's a substrate of those same steps. So it's like, you can get to steady state and then like a four week period will go by and then no longer at steady state. So it's, it's, it's got some stupid kinetics going on. Um, but the other thing that a lot of people don't realize about it is it can uh, cause hyponatremia, SIDH, and hyponatremia is more in the post-marketing uh, kind of surveillance that they've seen, but it's, it's more common than you probably would think, um, especially if there's other medications that could also potentially cause hyponatremia. So the patient was also on HCTZ at the time, um, so that could have, could have played a role as well. Um, but the bottom line is the, the patient actually has, um, was wanting to stop that anyway. Um, I guess they did their, the family at least did their own research and saw that can happen. And as far as the aggression and that type of behavior, the levotracetam uh, has been known to, to cause like behavioral disturbances like that. So patients that have psych disorders and things like that, you have to kind of watch out for changes in mood and whatnot when you're on levotracetam. It's not something that you know, we have to deal with the lot. I mean, Kepper is a very common medication, but it is something that you at least want to have like kind of on your radar. And, um, so, uh, couple things right off the bat, like the carbamazepine, you know, cause the other, the other part of that is, you know, is that being, um, you know, in this case it's being utilized for epilepsy, but was it kind of one of those things that, oh, we can use as a mood stabilizer as well. Um, you know, they trying to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. And so, you know, when it comes to looking at, you know, the different seizure types, here, I'm going to switch to this, my screen again, um, different seizure types. This is just a kind of a summary chart that I put together based on some different sources, but, um, you can kind of see he's got a ton of clonic seizures. So carbamazepine is a first line option. He's also on Dival Pro X, which is another first line option. Um, that being said, the seizures are uncontrolled and the, the patient is, you know, still experiencing way more than we would like. So, um, in the, the spirit of killing two birds with one stone, um, my recommendation when discussing with the provider was, you know, why not sort of cross taper the carbamazepine off and then start to slowly titrate the lamotrigine, um, the, the titrate the dose up. You have to go really slow with lamotrigine dosing. That's why it even has like starting packs, um, because of the skin hypersensitivity reaction, Steven Johnson syndrome, things like that. Um, it can happen if you go too quickly with the dose. Um, we definitely 
definitely did not want to cause any other problems with this patient. So um, lamotrigine, um, you know, starting off normal, you know, 25 to 50 milligrams, and then working our way up um, slowly from there. And um, we went ahead and decided to give that a try, got rid of the carbamazepam, and got rid of the levotracetam as well, since that may have actually been being counterproductive when it comes to the uh, psych disorder, the mood stabilizers and whatnot. So that's carbamazepine gone, levotracetam gone, and we started adding lamotrigine. I like lamotrigine a lot just because it's got so many different mechanisms. You can use it for more things than, like, say, carbamazepine, which is just focusing on sodium channels. You've got sodium channels, calcium channels, and glutamate, which are all major neurotransmitters in the brain and and these voltage-gated channels that contribute to so many of the different neurological uh, disorders. I feel like it's important to start hitting multiple mechanisms of action if you're going to try to approach different disease states for the same drugs off off label uh uses and, and you'll also see lamotrigine used very often in bipolar disorder so that's where i was saying we can kind of utilize this as our mood stabilizer and it's actually been used in combination with dival pro x uh, there's some data in um, patients with bipolar disorder or, or bipolar major depression um, utilizing lamotrigine and dival pro x uh, as well as uh, neuroleptic as well um, so this patient's kind of right you know in that kind of uh that that med combo grouping but um the other issue is with the yes i think the mood is being kind of um shaken up a little bit so to speak by the levotracetam i think that is playing a role but the patient even if the patient's depression symptoms were perfect which they're not um the risperidone is now causing tardive dyskinesia is what it sounds like which if you remember, like our initial, like first uh, generation antipsychotics, you know, our, our typical antipsychotics, they were especially the ones that are higher potency, like um, haloperidol. They're much more likely to cause tardive dyskinesia than our newer agents, our second gens, or our atypicals. But risperidone, you know, a lot of times people refer to it as like the most typical atypical, and so it does have one of the higher chances of causing, you know, those type of. Um, movement disorder. So tardive dyskinesia in particular, like this patient's experiencing, you know, we have things like pseudo Parkinsonism, uh, dystonia, acadesia, those types of things you hear about, they'll lump those under the umbrella term of um, EPS. Uh, a lot of people don't really like that term because it's, it's so such a broad term and there's you can treat the individual types of quote unquote EPS very differently. Um, so in this case, tardive dyskinesia, we want to get rid of that, the offending agent so that we don't, you know, run the risk of this becoming a more permanent thing and have to have the patient on, you know, one of those, uh, Ostido or one of those meds that are quite expensive. So discontinuing or at least tapering off the risperidone, but we need something to replace it. And since the patient's, you know, not having their symptoms controlled anyway, and they're also having insomnia, which I imagine there's probably a little bit of anxiety component to that as well. And we're going to talk about the insomnia meds, but um, my thought was, you know, at this point, maybe tapering off the risperidone and giving the patient uh, a chance to try quetiapine. Um, it's going to, it has good data in patients with bipolar disorder. Um, and it also, and specifically bipolar depre- major depression. And um, it also has the 
uh, fatigue or the sedation associated with it. So it works really well giving that at bedtime to help kind of induce sleep for a lot of these patients. Now you have to worry about the, you know, the hangover effect, so to speak in the morning. Cause if it's, if it lingers too long or the patient takes it too late in the evening, goes to bed too late, they may feel some of those residual grogginess the next day, but it does work as a pretty good option. when you have a patient that also has some insomnia present, um, and since we're already doing the lamotrigine, the quetiapine and lamotrigine actually is a combo that's been studied in a few different studies uh, for bipolar and major depression. And so it's something that uh, um, I, I think that would be a good kind of trial. And then if that's not, you know, not, not sufficient or, you know, you know, the patient doesn't like the side effects of it or whatever, because this quetiapine can cause some weight gain and some increases in appetite and some metabolic changes like glucose intolerance and whatnot. Not nearly as bad as like olanzapine, um, but it still, they can cause some problems and it, uh, but it does have a lot less likelihood of causing like the movement disorders and things like that. I think about ciprazidone too. But I feel like it's less efficacious than olanzapine or spadol, things like that. But you've still got much more of the sedating effect. So, yeah, and the, the cotiapine especially, um, like in this particular case. But zeprazidone is actually, I've used that several times for patients who have failed other um, antipsychotics. That, that worked really well. And um, the one thing I don't like about oral geodon or zeprazidone is you have to take it with a full meal. In fact, they actually say 500-calorie meal. Yeah. Um, twice a day. That's pretty annoying. Um, and so that can be kind of hard on the adherence piece of it. Plus it doesn't have the sedation associated with it, but, um, it does have less likelihood of side effects as far as like the weight gain and things like that. You do have to watch for patients who have like a prolonged QT interval or patients who are on other medications that can prolong that QT interval because it can do that as well. Um, but it's usually only in older patients who have an issue um, that we have to really worry too much about it. But, um, yeah, I definitely would say have that in your back pocket. Um, what do you think about clonazepam for uh, insomnia, AJ, since we talked about that in a previous episode? I think that's an option. Um, I don't think it's the best option, but I think it's definitely something that I can see that the providers are trying here. Um, as we move forward, we've definitely got to do something with it. Uh, I don't want to keep it on, especially considering all of the, the GABA effects and things that we've got. Um, I would taper it off. Yeah, especially if it started working initially and then now it's kind of like losing its efficacy the patients not really getting any symptom relief from it a lot of times these you know patients that after i mean a lot of times even like eight weeks they you're the body almost becomes like dependent to, to some extent. Um, and the tolerance definitely is there, but it becomes a little bit dependent on the benzos, which is why we don't really like those for long-term, you know, insomnia treatment. Uh, now previously he's, he had mentioned that he was taking, uh, Zolpidem and a lower dose of clonazepam, but that the, the Zolpidem wasn't doing anything, but the way that he was taking it, the clonazepam was you know, being taken earlier and the Zolpidem at that point, which is going to, is more specific, um, as far as the benzodiazepine receptors that it's binding to, um, the, the clonazepam is going to be kind of nonspecific. It's going to bind to one and two. Um, whereas the, um, the Zolpidem is going to be more focused on one. So it's not going to have the anxiolytic type effects. It's not going to have those muscle relaxer type effects. It's just going to cause the sedation and hypnotic type, um, effects that benzos can do. Um, and so if you're blind, if you're already activating those receptors that you're, you're going to have limited, uh, binding capabilities with the Zolpidem potentially. Now, obviously 
the way it really plays out and with different binding affinities and whatnot, that may not be a hundred percent accurate, but it, it is interesting that the Zolpidem didn't work at all. Um, where, and then he went up on the dose of the clonazepam and at least at first it did. Um, and it, also too, with, you know, the other, the other meds going on and side effects and stuff, I'm sure there is an anxiety component. So that's the other reason why I'm hoping that quetiapine will be a good option for him. Now, I still want to titrate the clonazepam off regardless, even if it is anxiety and things like that. Um, you know, but I, if we are going to have to go the hypnotic route, let's say the quetiapine is just not enough. He's not sleeping. Um, plus he's feeling really fatigued during the day, uh, because of the, um, sleep imbalance throughout the night. Um, if we are going to have to go like a hypnotic route, I would probably do um, escipiclone. Uh, there was a, a study or a meta-analysis, I should say, that was looking at basically efficacy, safety of the Rexanin, um inhibitors, the uh, different hypnotics, the benzos, things like that. Uh, it came out in, um, I believe it was like August or something like that of 2022. Um, I can link it in the show notes. But uh, basically one of the, the drugs that has more long-term data is Lunesta. Um, and, you know, it, it has been shown to be at least um, some uh, safety is not the right word. Safety in the fact is not going to not going to necessarily cause direct harm, but it's still not something we want them on long term. But at least we have some data to support its more long term use, um, efficacy wise. But there is more side effects. Um, patients complain of metallic taste. You still got to worry about the fatigue the next day, and so it's definitely not something that you can just you know put on and then just indefinitely have the patient um you know on that medication but that would be the next one that i would try definitely not a benzo um in this particular case especially with all the other stuff that's going on and and hopefully that the patient has access to some kind of a therapist or a cognitive behavioral therapist something like that which um, if we can get somebody that also has some experience in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia like we talked about in our insomnia episode um that uh can be very uh good combo between that and actual hypnotic drugs. You got to keep your eyes on the um, anticonvulsants and muscle relaxants when you're taking that esopiclone too. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and that's the reason why I said, let's try with the quetiapine, type, taper off the clonazepam. We're not just going to stop it cold turkey, but taper that off. And then while the quetiapine's dose is being increased, and then hopefully we don't have to go that route, but definitely age is 100% right. You got to be careful with all that different stuff because a lot of uh, ups and downs with your um, neurotransmitters. <laughs> So um, we'll jump uh, real quick into the blood pressure. So the losartan, 100 milligrams, I'm cool with that. I like ARBs a lot. Um, one thing I would say, losartan's half-life is, you know, fairly short. It's definitely not 12 hours, 24 hours. I think losartan might be 12 hours or less, actually. But um, you might get a little bit more bang for your buck by splitting, especially since he's so close to being at goal. Um, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, uh, compared to a lot of our other patients that we talk about on here, you know, 14 mil- millimeters of mercury systolic you you can with lisinopril um, for example when you switch from 40 milligrams once a day to to, you switch to 220 milligrams twice a day you can get like 10 more millimeters of mercury drop in the systolic blood pressure um, by dosing it on the half-life so you know same kind of thing can happen with losartan so if the patient's willing to that's they can keep the 100 milligram tablets just break them in half they're scored they're really easy to break and uh, just do half in the morning half at night i would stop the htz one, you guys know I don't like HTZ just because of the lack of outcome data. And also the hyponatremia risk um, with it, along with, you know, the other stuff that he's on. Um, there's, it can affect lipid panels in a negative way in some cases, too. Not, not Usually we don't worry about that clinically, but there is some uh, effect on um, your, the cholesterol panel. So I would say get rid of HTZ and maybe do, like, 
63 year old, so you might even be able to get away with like a 2.5 milligram amlodipine. Have them take that with the half milligram or the half tablet of Losartan in the morning, the other half of the Losartan at night. I think the blood pressure would be less than 130 over 80, would be my guess, as long as you can tolerate it. You can tell he's making those lifestyle changes and things too with yeah. his diet. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the the other thing was what's kind of weird is the, the lipids. So, the LDL 98, you know, based on everything else going on, I would be probably pretty good with, with that. Um, probably has a lower, I, we didn't calculate it, but probably a lower ASCVD risk because there's not like any history of cardiovascular events or anything. doesn't smoke. Um, blood pressure is not anything crazy. But, uh, you know, a Torba 40, I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, the phenofibrate, I'm not really that big of a fan of. In fact, some some guidelines will say not to even use a fibrate until like the triglycerides are over 1,000 and you're just, really worried about pancreatitis risk. Um, phenofibrates just lack the the outcome, you know, data that especially something like statins would have. So this is a classic example of why if you're going to go a high-intensity statin, my my go-to is always just to jump right to the, like with the torvastatin, I jump right to 80 milligrams. Um, because one, that's all the outcome studies have with the torvastatin have all been with 80 milligrams. There's like one that did 40 milligrams if they couldn't tolerate 80. Um, and then two, you have somewhere to go. If they do have muscle myopathies, myalgias, you can decrease the dose to 40. And then, you know, we know that, the the torvastatin is a lipophilic statin. Let's say they're still having muscle aches with that dose decrease, but we need the high intensity. Switch them to Resuva, hydrostat, uh, hydrophilic statin. And on milligrams. the way that they're looking at it, yeah, exactly. It's much more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. It looks like I'm still cutting that dose in half, <laughs> but we know. And then, uh, you know, from there we can get tricky and do every other day if we had to and things like that. But there's lots of room to go. So that's my personal kind of like strategy when I'm thinking about um, statins. But uh, this patient, you know, they have do have a history of diabetes, triglycerides um, above uh, 130 and um, less than 500. I'll um, tell you what, man. As a pharmacist looking at these labs and then looking at the medications, I, I don't have a problem with taking phenofibrate off right now, especially considering we're oh, on yeah. multiple antipsychotics or he's diabetic. These are good labs for normal folks. Yeah. So, and the triglycerides came down, that huge drop from 423 down to 245, when he got better control of his diabetes, and he started the Atorva at the same time as the phenofibrate. So, I doubt 48 milligrams of phenofibrate is doing all that much. Um, if we were going to add something, potentially, now I would say, let's jump to Atorva 40, or I mean, sorry, Atorva 80 first, because we can push the LDL low, or who cares, and um, that would take care of the triglycerides as well. Um, if we do need something else on top of that, the triglycerides are still above 130 or 135, then we can um, always add icosapen ethyl onto the brand name Vesipa. It's a purified fish oil. It's the one that actually has some outcome data with it from the reduced trial. Um, now, the, the reduced trial does have a little bit of... Um, I guess controversy surrounding it because like the placebo arm, they used uh, mineral oil, um, which can negatively affect someone's uh, lipid profile and whatnot anyway. Um, and so, but there, there's been a lot of, you know, kind of secondary analysis and whatnot. And so I, I feel pretty good about saying that, you know, it's something that I would still consider adding on to this patient. Plus the, 
we not really thinking along the lines of um, triglycerides as much as we would be LDL, but bimidoic acid, I think at least the preliminary data is looking good for positive outcomes on top of just lowering LDL. Um, so if we needed to below the actual LDL lower, we'd have that in our back pocket. Um, but this patient uh, would be a good candidate for uh, a cusipent ethyl if the Torva 80 wasn't enough to get the triglycerides down. And honestly, you know, the patient's probably still drinking um, some and, you know, other things like that that's keeping those, those triglycerides up. So that would be my thing. Get rid of the phenofibrate. He's already taken enough stuff. And uh, that way we can kind of maximize the Atorva as long as he can tolerate it and go from there. That's the first mechanism I'm not sure of. Which I'm, one? I'm not proud of that. How that Vicepa raises the HDL and doesn't raise the LDL. I had to figure that out. Well, I mean, all of them will raise the HDL and lower the but LDL. But that one's like very... So, you know, I went through my little database. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vicepa is actually like more known to reduce the triglycerides increase HDL significantly way more. Like you're not going to get that kind of HDL uh, raising with hmm. the statins, but with the Vicepa, the, so there's something about the icosapentaenoic acid that's going to make your high density lipoprotein increase in the body. But I, I got, I'll do some research. I'll have some for us. Follow up with us next time. Yeah. I like that. The, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is if the patient has a history of AFib or uh, atrial flutter as well, um, that, that risk can be a little bit higher with icosapenethyl. Um, so just use caution in that patient population. Uh, but other than that, you know, the other thing is you got to make sure the patient's willing to take, you know, two, capsules twice a day of the fish oil um not the most pleasant thing that's why i say maximize that statin first and then uh the other last little piece um, i know and just so we're clear these changes for some of this stuff wouldn't be happening all in one visit it would be like a very quick follow-up and then other things change so with the first visit we basically were changing the lamotrigine and you know getting the mood stabilizers and, and the risperidone kind of squared away um with the changing into quetiapine and then we started focusing on the other stuff the next week as far as blood pressure and the rest of it um just for those of you who are freaking out about all these changes um this is just for learning purposes at this point. That's why I'm going through it as if it's one visit. But uh, the other thing was the the fatigue. We kind of automatically attributed that to the you know the patient not sleeping well at night and whatnot. But uh, the hemoglobin actually was 10.1. MCV was 73, which kind of looks like microcytic uh, anemia, which is typically going to be a result of uh, iron deficiency anemia. Ferritin was 17. So. Normally, when that level drops, especially if usually 30, less than 30 is what we're kind of looking for, um, we're thinking iron deficiency anemia. Um, we could get a, a TSAT and, you know, a serum iron if we wanted to, but um, my treatment option for him, for those of you who are not familiar with the new iron, newer iron dosing, um, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I typically do ferrous sulfate 325 on once a day, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday only. That whole ferrous sulfate 325 three times a day, every day, um, you actually get like this paradoxical uh you know, less of an absorption with um, higher doses and more frequent doses of iron than you would with that, like every other day dosing. Um, the women's health uh, um, practitioners, I feel like, are the ones that were the quickest to adopt that. And it, it really does um, work well. I've had a lot of patients that, you know, switch over, their iron levels go up and they, their constipation, all their stomach upset goes Decreases, away. Man. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, kind of having in our back pocket, again, this would be probably two, three visits from now. If he, if the weight gain does become an issue, we start bringing that quetiapine dose up. Maybe it's working well, but he's worried about the weight gain. We always got something like semaglutide that we could, and hopefully soon um, terzepatide for weight loss. But he's got diabetes, so technically it would be okay. Um, 
but uh, you know, we could definitely get rid of the metformin because we're not married to metformin as far as first line options anymore for diabetes. Um, you could uh, get rid of that if you just were trying to decrease the pill burden and um, give Mozempic to just kind of monitor that weight and keep his appetite suppressed um, while he was uh, on these medications that can increase appetite. Um, so I'd kind of have that on standby just in case and kind of tell the patient that we have that in our back pocket just in case. So just to kind of to kind of recap, AJ, to keep me straight on all this. Um, so we are discontinuing Risperidone, so replacing it with cotiapine, titrating the dose up based on symptoms and hopefully curing some of that insomnia. Stopping carbamazepine. Um, for now, we're going to keep the Dival Pro-X. Uh, stopping levotracetam and basically starting Lamotrigine and then titrating that dose up to cover as an anti-epileptic and uh, as a mood stabilizer as well. Slowly, um, slowly titrate. Slowly. Yes, very slowly. And uh, from the blood pressure standpoint, um, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. From the insomnia standpoint, we're going to start breaking down the dose of the clonazepam, um, titrate that off very slowly so there's not too many abrupt changes, and hopefully the quetiapine dose will kind of take the place of that. Um, from a blood pressure standpoint, we will be doing twice a day dosing losartan, 50 milligrams, um, and then getting rid of the HETZ, doing like a 2.5 milligram amlodipine to start um, and then go up if we need to from there. Uh, at Torva, we'll go up to 80 milligrams, stop in phenofibrate, and metformin will have an asterisk next to it in case we need to get some weight loss. We'll get rid of that too and get those epic on board. What do you think? I think it's good. It sounds good. Looks good. I'm biased. Hey, but thanks, man. I got a little clinical pro for you, dude. Before you say that, I do want to give a quick, uh, just already like you know how they do like the uh, the thing where it's like, where are they now? In the <laughs> yeah. same episode. So th- this happened. This I got consulted on this patient like three and a half weeks ago, four weeks ago, and um, the uh, I did find out that the patient has not had a seizure since. Um, and has stopped chasing um, when he's because he was like a, at a um, he was in an extended stay place for just recently trying to get all the stuff straightened out chasing nurses and stuff up the hallways and losing his mind about little things hadn't done that at all anymore either so I think Lamotrigine's working out just that's fine. an outcome in itself that is perfect so I was very excited to hear that before we started recording <laughs> AJ now, what's your clinical pro I was going to say that uh, supplementation with vitamin C actually increases outcomes in a lot of those different uh, disorders where we're using those the same uh, antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. So as we're adding ferrous sulfate with the vitamin C, you know, I wouldn't use I wouldn't orange juice obviously because it's ascorbic acid. Yeah, but ascorbic acid specifically will help reduce oxidative stress, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, speaking of pearls, uh, for those of you who have not checked out our buddy, our sponsor of the podcast, Pearl's uh, new app. What are you doing? Um, he just updated the app. Now he's got some dosing strategies on there, and uh, there's drug-drug interaction checkers. Uh, there, he's, he's definitely got kind of an overhaul. I mean, the app was already, like, building and building and building already last year, but um, just released a big update, and so it looks um, kind of all new when you first log into it. And so um, very impressed with what he's done over the last year, and he's got big plans for 2023. So I've Got it. I use it. Yeah, I, I do too. I saw my wife using it. My wife's pharmacist too, and she was using it the other day, like sitting on the couch looking something up. I was like, all right, look at pearls go. <laughs> um, but yeah, the you know, very very supportive of the podcast, um, and you know they've been great to work with. Um, really appreciate them sponsoring us all through 2022. So make sure you check out uh, www.pearls. That's p y r l s dot com slash core consult rx. Sign up for free. You get some free treatment algorithms and charts and PDFs and stuff you can take home. And then 
uh, and keep, even if you don't want to keep with the free service and, uh, you may even want to upgrade to the pro service. And, um, it's very, uh, very cheap still. And, uh, like I said, you, you won't be disappointed. I, I, I don't think. And, um, if you can quit and cancel at any time, even for the free one, you can always, uh, unsubscribe your email, but definitely check them out. Um, they, like I said, they've supported the podcast a lot. So, um, definitely check them out if you guys can. If you want more like lecture style episodes and not just me running my mouth or, you know, us goofing around, uh, check out patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. I have all my PA uh, school um, lectures on there that I teach for pharmacotherapy. You know, so we just uh, are in the middle of finishing up the diabetes um, series on there now. So we went through insulin therapy, went through all of the type 2 pharmacotherapy uh, 2023 ADA algorithm, um, went through a bunch of background information and stuff. We're going to go through like cardiorenal protection um, for the fourth lecture. And it's like, I think it's like a hundred slides just for diabetes, um, but it ends up being like $3 a month or something like that. So I think it's a fair, a fair deal. So check that out. If you want uh, that, there's a whole bunch of different um, disease states on there. And we're trying to add stuff on there at least, um, at least once a week, if not twice a week with a bunch of pharmacotherapy practice questions, all kinds of good stuff. You can do what I do. What do you do? Just pay three months every year. Yeah. In January. Yep. Get it all. Yep. And then just unsubscribe. There you go. I don't next care. Next year, just read and it. Then, and then share your password with a friend. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, whatever. If you can't if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. It's all good. I get it. You guys are school. Some of you are in school and you're trying to learn even more. I'm proud of you. Go steal my stuff. I don't care. And uh, if you want to talk to me, AJ, Cole, our emails will be in the show notes. You can reach us on social media platforms. Um, and uh, sorry we kind of you know, left out uh, episodes of the last bit of 2022, but hopefully we'll get the year start off right. Appreciate you guys listening to us still and uh, all the support. And uh, we will see you guys on the next episode. Have a great one.